This is the Untold Civil War Podcast, and if you've been keeping up with our episodes, you'll know that I served in the 69th New York as an infantryman. During that time, I met a bunch of interesting characters. My first team leader was a sergeant originally from Ukraine who had served in the Soviet Marines, Israeli commandos, and then of course the U.S. military. He was the type of man who led a soldiering life, and he was not the first of his kind. Soldiers of fortune, career warriors, have served in the military as far back as the American Civil War, and those are the men we'll be talking about today. But before we get started, just know that this episode will also be featured in two parts on YouTube. The first will be on Lord Rivers, our guest's channel, and the second will be on our channel. So if you prefer to watch this discussion with visuals, please check out the links in the show notes. And now, have your bed nurse turn up the volume, forget the woes of cholera, and let's delve into some untold civil war. Uh, here we are, another episode on the Untold Civil War podcast, and I am again with our one of our favorite guests, Lord Rivers, and we're going to be talking about soldiers of fortune in the Civil War. Thank you for coming on the podcast yet again. Really appreciate you, having you here. Thanks for having me. We get to talk about some untold Civil War and some actually like really interesting figures. I, 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 any of these people I would love to have met, and, and I'm just I'm glad we get to uh, tell their stories today. Absolutely. Um, so if we could just start it off, what is a soldier? First of all, the definition. What is a soldier of fortune? What are we looking at here? Well, I think it has a lot of negative connotations to some people that they're you know, mercenaries that are, that are working um, you know, for whatever army will hire them. For a lot of these people, though, they are professional soldiers, and when there is no war in their country, it doesn't even phase them to go sign up to fight for another country. Whoever else needs professional soldiering. It does get looked down upon at the time. There are some interesting comments from people about soldiers of fortune, about mercenaries, but um, at the end of the day, they are professional soldiers going to ply their trade in whatever conflict is uh, is brewing around the world. And I guess you could definitely say that one of these professional soldiers is Garibaldi. Now, does he come to the Civil War? Is there a story about that? So Garibaldi is, is such an interesting figure. He began his career in Italy, but then goes to South America to fight, um, is heavily involved in the revolutions in South America, uh, a failed revolution in Brazil, and then a successful liberation of Uruguay. He leads this revolution in, in Rome and is very important in the First Italian War of Independence. In 1859, he leads the uh, Cacciatori degli Alpi in uh, northern Italy, and then he has the famous red shirts, which I'll talk about later. He is a celebrity. He is a military celebrity. Everyone knows him. He's not just a soldier of fortune, though. He is usually in it for the cause, and and he is a you know one of the great liberators, one of the great freedom fighters of the mid 19th century. And so people are wondering whether Garibaldi. You know, the, the celebrity general might involve himself in the Civil War. Garibaldi actually sends a letter to Lincoln offering his services. Of course, he would only like to be the commander-in-chief, and he would prefer that uh, Lincoln immediately free the slaves um, to make clear that it is a, a struggle for that rather than dancing around the subject. Of course, that's rejected, but uh, as for interesting historical possibilities, any uh, alternate histories, that would have been profoundly interesting to see Garibaldi. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Serving, serving in America. Now, that's a whole conversation for a different day of what he would have done. Um, right. I, I think he's a very much a bayonet charge sort of guy, um, and he's not a professional in the way that a lot of the uh, Crimean War experienced officers mm -hmm. are. It might have been even more bloody. Who knows? Right, right. That definitely could have happened. Um, and there were people that were actively trying to recruit Garibaldi. Um, and there were people that were uh, working for Garibaldi trying to spread his name around in the U.S. So there were people trying to make it happen. It just it didn't happen. 
It didn't happen, but many similar gentlemen with uh, similar talents and uh, similar um, uh, backgrounds definitely chose to uh, come through to the Civil War, uh, to the United States to serve in the Civil War. And so let's talk about some of their motivations as well. As for motivations, I mean, we'll we'll talk about the different figures that that mm-hmm. we've chosen, uh, but there there are myriad um, motivations. There yeah. are uh, you know true believers in the cause on both sides. Um, there are people that are clearly in it just for the money. It is just another war, another day, another day, another war, um, and. Uh, there are people that uh, you know have personal connections to one side or the other. So it, you know, like like any situation, there's going to be a lot of different motivations uh, for most of the figures that I've chosen. I think I think they're professionals and they're not uh, they're not true believers. Right. Okay. Well, why don't you lead us off? Talk about some of the first uh, people you've chosen. I think we have to start with my favorite figure. He is just an, a very, very interesting figure. I've talked about him all the time. Um, anybody that knows me knows I talk about Sir Percy Wyndham. Um, had the Gosh. giant, giant whiskers. Um, and his men would always get nervous when he started twirling his whiskers. <laughs> he just got very angry. Um, but for interesting mid-19th century characters figures he just has such a uh, a repertoire of of events he's like Forrest Gumpor he's everywhere in in that mid-19th century context so he in 1848 he joins the French Navy he's an Englishman joins the French Navy just for some experience uh, accepts a commission in the British Army and then after gaining some experience with the cavalry, goes and works for the Austrians. I guess he wasn't going to progress enough in the British Army uh, and goes and works for uh, the Habsburgs and uh, is in a Lancer regiment, ends up commanding a Lancer regiment in Austrian service until 1860. And then, and, and this is another one of those questions where the soldier of fortune issue comes up of, is it, is it very uh, uncouth to not only switch to a different army, but go to the other side. Ah, yes. Uh, because he uh, joins Garibaldi um, in 1860, and he actually uh, becomes a lieutenant colonel in Garibaldi's uh, red shirts. So that's not the regular Piedmontese army. It's not the Northern Italian army. It's um, volunteers under Garibaldi in Sicily, and in uh, Calabria that are fighting to overthrow the the Bourbon kingdom of the two Sicilies down there. So from 1860 to 61, he's on the other side and fighting for Garibaldi. And there he makes a bunch of connections. In fact, he you know is a personal um, contact with Garibaldi. He meets Chatham Roberto Wheat, uh, who I didn't oh, put wow. on the list, but but he's just as interesting. I think Sir Percy Wyndham is so much more interesting than Wheat, but Wheat, of course, is a is one of Garibaldi's red shirts, and then goes and forms the Louisiana Tigers, and he actually meets Sir Percy when Sir Percy is captured, and he runs over to him and says, "Percy, old boy," um, and they they have a moment when Sir Percy is not in his best moment because I'm skipping ahead here, but uh, Sir Percy gets captured along with most of his regiment at one uh. point in the war. That's that's with, when he's with the first New Jersey. And so all of these uh, soldiers of fortune, a lot of them have these, these connections with each other. Right. It's a small circle, you know? Yeah. If you've been yeah. fighting all these different wars, you're bound to bump into one another yeah. once, twice, maybe more than that. Yeah. And then sometimes you're fighting against each other. Sometimes you're fighting with each other. So Yeah, yeah. And so Sir Percy, this is kind of where I get my Lord Rivers thing from, is where Sir Percy called himself Sir because he had been given an Italian knighthood. He had Ah. uh, the military order of Savoy. And he, he had been given that, very proud of it. But, of course, it wasn't actual English 
right. nighttime. And so everyone finds him incredibly pretentious for using Sir Percy, but I think it's great. That, uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. He has such an interesting career, and when we get after the Civil War, I will read his obituary, um, which which is just as fantastical as the rest of his life. On that note, I'd like to say that as although he did serve with Garibaldi, there were other soldiers of fortune who were actually on the other side. So not every soldier of fortune were on the Garibaldi side. Yeah, uh, yeah. So do you, uh, I do you have one? I do have one. Wow. I have great. I have one one character that I like. His name's Miles Keough. Yes. And uh I know that people may know him from the movie uh, I believe they died with their boots on, right? With Errol Flynn about yeah. the uh, yeah. 7th Cavalry. They talk um, so much about onions in that movie that I call that oh, the yeah. onion movie. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea why, but they're creamed onions. Yes. <laughs> Where, where they got that, I don't know. I don't know either. I would like to know. But Miles um, Keough definitely is portrayed in that movie as sort of this happy-go-lucky Irishman who actually introduces the song Gary Owen to the 7th Cavalry. I don't know if that's true at all. I will say that he was actually known to be quite depressing, morose. He really wasn't that happy-and-go-lucky. But he did start out his career. He was born to a well-to-do Catholic family from County Carlo, uh, and when he was 20 years old, uh, he left for Italy to join Pope Pius IX in his fight against Garibaldi's revolutionaries. Um, he became a member of the Battalion of St. Patrick, and despite being issued poor uniforms and weaponry, they served courageously. And for their service, the men, including Keough, were presented, by, uh, presented with medals by the Pope. Um, which is something I'll get to because it's sort of a good luck charm later in his career when fighting Indians. But of course, he would then, as the fighting wind down, he would stay in the papal army and serve as a member in their Irish Zouave company until he heard about rumors and the civil war happening across the pond and more adventure to be had. So uh, he too would make his way to the American continent. Yeah, the papal army is really interesting. Um, because of the fact that it collects volunteers from all over the Catholic world. So oh, yeah. it, I, I always think that it, they're, they're full of really interesting characters. There's one character, one of my favorite historical figures of all time, other than Sir Percy Wyndham, is Washington Carroll Tevis. And it's actually an American. Fascinating that I actually like an American figure. <laughs> um, but he's really interesting because he ends up serving the Pope after the Civil War. But he begins his career, goes to West Point, starts training with the cavalry in the U.S., and then inherits a bunch of money. So what do you do when you inherit a bunch of money? You leave the army and you go to Paris. Obviously, that's what you <laughs> that's... do in the 19th century. Why not? Why not? <laughs> so he um, he goes and jaunts around Paris for quite a bit and actually ends up at the beginning of the Crimean War accepting a commission as a Binbashi cavalry officer in the Ottoman service. Wow. That's out of, that's out of left field. Actually having a an American who's recently been living in France go work for the Turks. Uh, right. And he actually distinguishes himself he becomes a colonel in the in the bashi bazooks and fights in one of the lesser known theaters of the crimea not just not actually in on the crimean peninsula but over near the siege of cars in the caucasus and in uh, eastern anatolia and he ends up fighting uh, becomes a general in the civil war and then after he goes and uh, after working for the Fenians, for the Fenian Brotherhood, uh, goes and serves serves the Pope. And I forgot to mention, he did convert to Catholicism in 1853. It may or may not have been for a girl uh, in Paris, but uh, he, he does that. And so that's his connection to uh, the Fenians and the Papal States. It's interesting you bring that up because I have uh, another character. When you're talking about going to Paris, right, there have been many, um, many ne'er-do-wells or soldiers of fortune that do end up going to Paris yeah. to look for employment with none other than the French Foreign Legion, right? The home yeah. to all of these soldiers of fortune. 
Konstantin Blandowski. I know I might be butchering that uh, Polish name there, but he actually was he was a soldier all his life, and he got his start early on serving in the French Foreign Legion in Algiers. And after serving with them, he would go serve in the uprisings in 1846 in Krakow among the Polish patriots. And as everything continues, all these uh, revolutions through 1848, he ends up joining the Hungarian army in the 3rd Ulan Regiment. So he too started out in France and branched out. That's what I really like about all of these figures is that you know, they have that connection to the Civil War, which we all really enjoy learning about. But it, it gives you a window into all the other events in the mid-19th century. Most people that, that study the Civil War might not know about uh, the, the 1848 revolutions and how they were so important to everyone living in Europe at the time. But through all these figures, you get to see other rabbit holes that you go down to research. Oh, right. right. Absolutely. And it, it's true because when you look at these, like the 1848 revolutions and the other things that are happening in other parts of the world, you sort of get into that perspective of not just the soldiers of fortune, but the average immigrants who were in the United States at the time serving and how they sort of viewed their world and how they understood the the cause and what the cause was to them. Uh, it all goes back to how they were raised and what they witnessed back in the old country. And I, and I think everybody talks about the Irish Brigade, which is, of course, super important to talk about. Um, right. As an Irish person, I can't disparage the Irish Brigade. <laughs> but two other ones that are important is the Garibaldi Guard, of course, um, which is... The reason I bring it up now is it's hugely comprised of Hungarians. It's a huge amount right. of Hungarians in the uh, Garibaldi Guard, and a lot of them have that experience from '48. And then, of course, most of the units in 11th Corps in the uh, the European brigades, a lot of them have that that 1848 service. And that's not to say that they're professional soldiers. They might have combat experience, but they might not have that technical expertise but it is interesting to have that 1848 connection right and i think i read somewhere that the german dutch immigrant percentage in the uh the armies was actually larger than the irish probably yeah Um, i I don't have the statistics on that but there there are a lot in in both in in uh, on both sides too For, for sure yeah and of course um we're talking about the 1848 revolutions and some of those motivations for yeah. some of these um, people to come to the United States. Uh, one of my characters that I find very interesting is uh, Prince Felix Constantine Alexander Johann Nepomuk of Solm Solm. He is a really interesting guy, and he actually served in the Prussian military, the Austrian military, eventually the Union, finally the Imperial Army of Mexico, yeah. which we'll, we'll get to. Yeah, And he's actually, in name, he is actually of noble birth. So I was actually able to find an article here written by his wife, which sort of talks about why these nobles and, and 48ers came to the United States uh, to serve during the Civil War. So I'm just going to read that real quick for our listeners. It is astonishing how many German noblemen found it necessary to go out of the way of European difficulties and seek a refuge in the United States. The Prussian and Austrian army furnished a considerable contingent of shipwrecked officers who mostly had to run away before their creditors or who escaped the consequences of some dual breach of discipline, if not some less pardonable sins. The salt water flowing between Europe and America was, however, was supposed to wash off all European impurities. Nobody cared how one had sinned in the old country as long as he behaved in a manner which was thought proper in America. New York and other large cities were teeming with characters of that kind, and their position before the war had been a very precarious one. Their military knowledge was not of the slightest use to them in America. Then the social prejudices, pretensions, and views which they brought with them were the principal impediments (coughs) to their success. Many perished miserably because they could not renounce them. Others only commenced to get on with the direst necessity had compelled them to work. Those acted most wisely who at once resolved to earn their living in 
in whatever honest manner, not concerning whether their occupation was in accordance with the position they had held in Europe. Work does not dishonor in America, but a life of idleness does. The revolutions of 1848 and 49 brought numbers of refugees from Germany to America. They were found not only in the cities of the East, but almost everywhere in the United States. And it cannot be denied that this immigration had a great and, I think, salutary influence on the German element in America. For amongst these refugees were many distinguished men, though also a great number of blackguards, who were always to be found in the wake of revolutions. New York especially was crowded with this latter class of people. The outbreak of the war was a godsend to most of the shipwrecked Germans, especially those from Prussia, as all of them had been soldiers, and even the most imperfect knowledge of military things was then of the highest value to the Americans, who understood nothing at all of them. In the land of the blind and the one-eyed is king, Prussian corporals became high officers, and those who understood how to strike the iron whilst it was red hot could rise to the highest military honors. The military chiefs of the German Revolution, whose importance and military talents were greatly exaggerated and mostly overrated by their countrymen, rose at once to high places, as the American government acknowledged the military rank they had held in the Revolution, as had been done also in England at the breaking out of the Crimean War. So she didn't really have a great view of all of them, uh, but it is interesting. Yes, it is in interesting to say that uh, Prince Felix, uh, who she ends up marrying, is one of these gentlemen who, although he knew plenty about fighting, he ends up fighting in the first Schleswig Schleswig War. Excuse me, if I'm pronounced. Yes, uh, and receiving a sword of honor from the King of Prussia and the Austro-Sardinian War. However, he wasn't as good with money, and because of his certain debts, he did end up running to America, according to uh, her writings. So. Yeah, I think we talked about the Second Schleswig War last yes. episode because the, uh, the, the eye of Parliament shifts away from the American Civil War over to the Schleswig Crisis because... A war with Prussia and Denmark is much more likely to upset the balance right. of power in Europe than than uh, you know some squabble in America. But yeah, that's that's a that's a fascinating look into uh, the the blackguards of '48. Yes, so you so you have a lot of these uh, trained military personnel who are in the Americas, who are fond of duels, fond of fighting, um, and need a job. <laughs> What's interesting about Prince Felix is that. He basically knew no English, and he even admitted that himself. And so when and they when, offered him— When did he arrive in America? Uh, I believe he arrived—I'll I'll have to double-check. I think the war—when he arrived, uh, McClellan was, was already in command, I believe. Oh, okay. So, so he, wasn't, he wasn't there ahead of time. No, not ahead of time. Okay. I believe when he arrived, McClellan was already in command. At least he was already looking for, for a command when McClellan was around. And he does end up, well, they offered him a command. He said no, because he was afraid his English wasn't good enough. But as we mentioned before, there are plenty of Germans in the uh, Union Army. And so they soon found a position for him as a colonel in one of these regiments, leave yeah. it, and first the 8th New York. So I have three more figures I have to talk about, or I have to introduce before oh, the war Oh, yes, begins. let's go ahead. Uh, but but uh, I, don't, I don't know how many you have left. But I'm gonna go um, with the next one. Yeah. Since we're talking about the French, I think Polignac is very interesting. The the Confederates obviously had a hard time pronouncing his name, so they called him Prince Polcat. Yeah. <laughs> so Prince Polcat started his career uh, as a French officer in the Crimea, and he was just a lieutenant in the Crimea. Continues in the French service, and then comes to the uh, the the Confederate States during the uh, Civil War and actually rises to become uh, a major general. And he's he's apparently the last major general to die after the war, Confederate oh. major general. Fairly young general and brings that professionalism. He serves in the Franco-Prussian War after the uh, after the Civil War, but it's he has this air of professionalism that he brings to his command, at least. And he certainly has a memorable name of Prince Polcat. Yes. The the two other ones I'm going to mention, of course, I can't do anything without mentioning my favorite book, A World on Fire, 
um, Amanda Foreman's giant tome on Britain and the American Civil War. And along with Sir Percy, the one she talks about quite a bit as for um, British soldiers in foreign service, it's Henry Fielden. Um, and Henry Fielden first joined the Black Watch. He actually comes from a military family. He was born in Kildare. He's an Englishman, but he was born in County Kildare, which is near the barracks uh, for a lot of cavalry units because a lot of horses come from Kildare. My family in Ireland is from Kildare Town in Kildare, so I've been over to Kildare many times. There's a, a large military museum there now, actually, and it's still a proving ground. It's still a, a training area for the Irish Army. They even have a a cannon from the Crimean War there. But his father was in the 17th Lancers. He ends up joining the Black Watch, is involved in the uh, Indian, Indian Mutiny, uh, the suppression of the mutiny and the Indian Rebellion. And then he fights at the Taku Forts um, in China. So he's been all over the world. Um, and then he goes and joins Confederate service um, is recommended by some of his friends. Everybody has those connections. I and mean, he ends up being um, adjutant to uh, to Johnston. But a lot of his, his interesting things happen after the war. But uh, Henry Fielden, very interesting. And you can and I, read a lot of his. He does meet Fremantle, right? Yeah. Fremantle, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I, 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 Fremantle deserves his own episode. Yeah, but uh, he does meet Fremantle at some point. It, it seems like any time Englishmen are around in the war, the Confederates or actually both sides go out of their way to introduce them to the other Englishmen. Hey, you're you're English. You're, you're, yeah. you know this guy. <laughs> hey, and they uh, there are a bunch of those little uh, little vignettes, especially Percy, old boy. Yes. But uh, the last figure I'm going to talk about is William Loring. And he isn't a soldier of fortune until after the war. Uh, and so I'll talk about him a little later. But he actually serves in Mexico, rises to be a major. And so at the beginning of the war, he's kind of a big deal in the Confederate Army, becomes a, uh, a major general in the Confederate Army, and actually outranks Lee for a time, or at least... Uh, disdainful of Lee, who actually gets sent to observe Loring's command at one point, and so he kind of sees it as uh, Richmond overstepping, but he has that prior service, but he will have a much more interesting career abroad than he does in the um, in Confederate service. So that's that's all my characters introduced. Do you have any more? I have, I just have one more. Okay. And again, just like Loring, he doesn't really have uh, a soldiering career at the start. So his name's actually George DuPont, and he's unique because he comes from Siam. So if we talk about sort of interesting what-ifs, if anyone's seen the movie The King and I, uh, they'll know that the King of Siam did offer Lincoln some elephants, Yes. For for his army. Yeah. Uh, um, Lincoln did not accept this offer. Um, I actually have the quote here real quick. I think he explains that um, in the United States, uh, steam as uh, on land and water is really their best and most efficient agent of transportation. And that elephants just wouldn't cut it really in the U.S. climate. So the U.S. didn't get elephants from Siam, but they did get George DuPont, which I think is an interesting in – an interesting character in and of himself. Uh, he started out as a type founder in the United States. He comes over and he's work he has that regular civilian job uh, until he has to en enlist in Company B on the 13th New Jersey um, when the Civil War finally breaks out. And we can get into his experience in the Civil War so um, as we go on. American or he's Thai? So. That's something they're not sure about. The only thing that they're able to find is that in his enlistment records, he does have those Thai features. Dark hair, dark eyes, right? But okay. there's no image of him. They don't know if he was an American over there that came back or you know, son of uh, missionaries there or who knows. But they do know that in his enlistment records, he does have Thai features. That's about it. There's no picture yet found of him. Oh, so that would know. be interesting. We don't know. Yeah. 
So with a lot of things with this, I, I kind of get reminded of what I talk about when I portray von Steuben, when I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm Haven. In the 1770s, there's no shortage of gentlemen that think they would be great at running an army and are willing to accept a commission and some pay. And so there are a lot of volunteers for American service in 1770. And, and it was Franklin, you know, in the, in the American delegation job to kind of sift through that. And when they first meet von Steuben, they say, no, thanks. Uh, there were so many amateurs that had come over. And so it's only with a little resume fudging that Franklin and the delegation agree to let von Steuben go over. And and it, it was hard to convey that. I mean, they say he was a major general and he was a lieutenant general in the Austrian service. And they, they really fluffed up his resume. But it was hard to convey this guy's a real professional soldier. Just because he's a captain doesn't mean he doesn't know. He personally studied with Frederick the Great. He was a, uh, you know, his father was an engineer officer and was important at the Siege of Prague. He lives and breathes the professional military. And so it's the same situation, what is it, uh, four score and seven years later, when uh, you have all these foreign volunteers coming over and it's hard to tell are these guys real professionals or are they amateurs looking for glory and i think for most of the people that i've chosen they are professionals and they're not just amateurs looking for glory there are when it comes to loring i i think he is an amateur and i think he went looking for glory elsewhere but for instance with sir percy he was a real professional cavalryman. He had his men train with the saber and everyone kind of scoffed at it at the time. They still scoff at it now. But in um, one of his major engagements at Brandy Station um, in a thoroughfare gap, they use their sabers. And at Brandy Station, when he's commanding a brigade, he has the famous charge against Jeb Stewart's positions. And they aren't successful, but they do catch Stewart by surprise and kind of lift the veil on the mystique of Stewart. But my favorite quote from that engagement is uh, that some Confederates shout at them and say, draw your pistols and fight like gentlemen. <laughs> and, and it's kind of the opposite of what you would normally Yeah, it, you wouldn't expect that. Yeah. gentlemanly uh, thing to do, but they were in such close quarters that the, the pistols and carbines weren't effective, and he was just interested in getting in close, fight with your saber, and, you, and if they actually knew what they were doing, they were quite deadly with the saber, and his men greatly respected him after that, and that kind of gets Sir Percy back from the, the doldrums of him having been uh, captured, and, right. and you know, because it, it, dash and fire doesn't always work. Sometimes you run into a trap and your whole regiment gets captured, but sometimes, you know, with the appropriate training, the, the men really can benefit from real professional soldiering. And I think that was a great example of a professional. Now, I've talked about it on my channel with Brett. Brett has his books about it, but musketry is also a huge thing. And in British service, at least, and this gets proven with basically anyone that was a British infantry officer, the capability of the rifle musket is insane is really impressive if it's used correctly if it's not used correctly you do you know what they did in the american civil war which is come within 200 yards of each other and slog it out but with the uh, actual understanding of the capabilities the ability to judge distance the ab- ability to judge your traje- trajectory of your, of your rounds a professional soldier can fire his company fire a, a regiment out to a thousand yards and field him you know when he was fighting at the taku Ports, they used long-range fire to pin down enemy position while infantry advanced under that fire. And so the, the professionalism element really is interesting to me, that they had a lot of stuff to offer. And I think that elevates a lot of these people to professional soldier over soldier of fortune. Right, that's that's right. my defense of Sir Percy. He did nothing wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And I think if we go further into that, uh, at least for one of my characters, um, my Polish character, Bandowski, there is an image of him. I can send it to you. I'll put it on my Instagram, but I can send it yeah. to you as well that people can actually take a look at him. But not only is he a professional, it's interesting you mentioned the sword thing because when he comes to the United States, he becomes a master fencer for one of the German uh, sports clubs. And another thing about him is that he actually ends up giving his life for this cause very early on. So at the Cap Jackson affair, which was essentially um, what happened was a pro-secession militia had mustered just out St. Louis, where St. Louis, Missouri, where there was a federal arsenal. Sumter had already taken place, but prior to Sumter and just after Sumter, there was a pattern of this where secession militia were basically capturing and taking control of federal arsenals and fortifications. So those Union troops com um, commanded by Nathaniel Lyon knew that their arsenal was in jeopardy. So they went out to arrest this secession militia, which they did successfully and were escorting them back through town when a drunk man, according to the writings of Sherman, who was actually there with his son, not famous yet, a drunk man drew a revolver and began firing at the soldiers. He, he states an officer was shot in the leg and, and chaos ensues, essentially, and that officer was Blandowski. Blandowski is actually mortally wounded. I've heard reports that the shot, maybe for the drunk man with a revolver, I've also heard that it might have been from friendly fire by accident. There's also the story that he was the one who actually ordered the soldiers to fire as he fell, but none of that has been substantiated. Ultimately, though, his wound proves mortal, and he passes away on May 25th, which is interesting because had he passed away earlier, he may have been remembered as the first Union officer killed in the conflict. Instead, that honor went to Elmer Ellsworth, who died a day earlier. So technically, you could say maybe he was the first mortally wounded officer of the war. But when they came here, they had professional skills. And you could argue that in this case, maybe a lot of these guys did believe enough of the cause to be willing to risk their lives out there. And and Blandowski actually give his life for the cause that he believed in for the isn't North. <laughs> it, isn't it depressing when you when you research these people and get really attached to them and keep reading the story and then they die when you don't expect? Yes. I, yes, I, and so early on, that was it. Yeah, I actually <laughs> oh. had a figure that I had discovered before in passing, mm -hmm. a passing reference, but it was very depressing because I have such a, a connection to this guy. And only two days ago, I figured out this connection. Bradford Smith Hoskins, he's not, you know, the flashy, exciting figure that is in my list here, but he actually was in the 44th. And, you know, anybody that knows me, that's the unit I portray for the Crimean War and then for post-Crimea. It's not a dashing unit. We actually chose it because it was a uh, just a regular line infantry unit and it's the most massacred regiment in the British Army. But uh, <laughs> Bradford Smith Hoskins served in Crimea, actually ended up fighting with Garibaldi too. So he would have known uh, Sir Percy and he would have known Wheat um, and all of these interesting people. And then he goes and fights with Mosby. Um, wow. And for anybody that knows Mosby's Rangers, they're a tough crowd. And apparently he still wore his red uniform, wore ah. his British uniform while everyone in this ragtag bunch is uh, galloping around. And he actually dies um, in Virginia with Mosby at his side. You can see his grave. There's only one very grainy picture I've found of him. But it's very sad when you find the tragic deaths in history. It's, it's an interesting connection that you feel when you do that. Yeah, research. absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And of course, death is on, on both. Both sides as well. It's not just the soldiers of fortune who are being killed, but for example, my character Miles Keough, who ends up coming to the United States after serving in the Papal Army, he serves in the Union Army as a cavalryman. He survives Antietam, survives Fredericksburg, Gettysburg, Randy Station, and he actually becomes a favorite of General John Buford, who was played by Sam Elliott in the movie Gettysburg. Yes, behind the uh, he... high ground. Yes, the high ground. <laughs> <laughs> he, and he served on Buford's staff, and when Buford died after contracting what some would say is typhoid, uh, it was said that he was being held in Keo's arms at the time. So wow. the, these uh, guys, they— 
develop relationships with the fe their fellow brothers in arms, even though they weren't necessarily born and raised Americans or originally dedicated to the, the cause of the Union. You know, they came here as soldiers of fortune, but that didn't stop them from building those relationships and those ties. And at first meeting, a lot of these snooty European professional soldiers don't come off very well to, uh, no, yeah. to the American yeah. soldiers. And most of them that I read do earn that respect as the war progresses. And Absolutely. We see, uh, they come to understand their funny speaking professional soldiers in the, in the army. But how do, how do some of your characters fare during the war? So during the war, we talked about Sir Percy. We talked about Henry Fielden. He's actually at the surrender. Polignac makes it out. Nevis Bay makes it out. Loring makes it out. I think that's all of my characters. Only pick people that survived. Uh, see, yeah, well, one of my characters has already, uh, you know, been uh, didn't make it to the end of the <laughs> the podcast here. Prince Felix, he does make it out. He does serve uh, in the American Civil War, and he does make it out. Uh, not only does he make it out, but he uh, is offered a commission in the regular army after the war, wow. which wasn't offered quite yeah, often. That's a big deal. Yeah, which he actually turns down and chooses to go help uh, Emperor Maximilian in the issue across the border. Bold which move. Was it the right one? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> which we, we could get into. DuPont, of course, he enlists in Company B of the 13th New Jersey. He serves in Antietam, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg. He actually becomes a victim of the most common threat in warfare, a disease, recovers. He, he serves in Reseca, where he receives his first real red badge of courage. It was only a slight wound, but again, he would be wounded at the Battle of Culp's Farm, and he would be ultimately discharged in 1865, where he would return to his life as a type founder before he finds that life too restless after serving in the military, and he must find something else to do. Yeah. Um, there's also talk that he may have been on the wrong side of the law at the same time. And Miles Keough, same thing. He survives the war, and he is offered command in the regular army. Again, very rare honor, especially when they're downsizing. And he even says it, when all the great volunteer army is scattered to the winds, I am among few selected to be retained in the regular army. He was very proud of that. And as seen uh, in the Civil War, he was always in the middle of the action, and he would end up in the fateful 7th Cavalry on its expedition towards the Little, little Bighorn. Wow, yeah. that's interesting. Just like the movie. Yes, just like the movie. <laughs> A completely historically accurate movie. Uh, yeah, there you go. It has to be. has to be yes, now. Everything's be. adding they up. They all sang songs and ate onions. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens to some of your characters as they so, uh, as the war ends so and gonna, they find other employment? One, I'm going to talk about the one with immediate implications. Uh, Washington Carroll Tevis starts working for the Fenians. You know, the Fenian Brotherhood, they're Irish nationalists that are planning an attack on British Canada, hoping that they're going to get that, if not official American support, at least American volunteers for this attack on British Canada in, in hopes of freeing Ireland, actually ends up being a, a brigadier general for the Fenians, starts training them, is very involved in the planning stages, and we now know he was working for the British the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> he received a hundred pounds a month to pass them information, and I bet that had something to do with their failures. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Yeah, he. Uh, he's I he's a real J uh, James Bond secret agent yeah, kind of character terms of here. Soldier of fortune. I don't know if this guy's on the top of the list for honorable. Well, <laughs> but uh, he was working for the Fenian Brotherhood and had been, even though he was a Catholic, uh, was passing information to the British the entire time we now know. Ah, well, everyone has their price, I guess. Yes. Uh. Yes. So then he goes and works for the Papal Army, becomes distinguished in training volunteers for the Papal Army. And of course, they get completely ready for a big fight because the, um, of course, Southern Italy had fallen in 1860, fighting until 1862. But there was the papal states before the vatican the micro state of the vatican was formed the papal states actually basically controlled all of central italy and it wasn't until
until the Franco-Prussian War that the Italians actually moved in on the Papal States because Napoleon III, being um, the preeminent Catholic ruler, actually gave his promise to the Pope that Papal territory would be sovereign and France would defend it. And so immediately when France surrenders to Prussia, the regular Italian army starts moving in on Rome. At that point, Washington Carroll Tevis had already moved on. He, he was called Nevis Bay by the Ottomans, so I always remember him by Nevis Bay, so I have to think about Washington Carroll Tevis. But um, he, he actually ends up working for the French in the Franco-Prussian War, commanding, I believe, a division in the Franco-Prussian War after training the Papal States. And then goes and works for the Egyptians, which I'll, I'll save for the last. But such an interesting guy, actually gets Order of St. Ferdinand. He wears a bunch of different noble order stars, has all... You, uh, I'll put up the picture of him in, in his full-dress uniform after the war, because it's quite the sight. I don't know if it's appropriate now, but I just feel like I have to end my story with Miles Keough here, because you do mention the medals and yeah. decorations. That is a Miles Keough story right there. Like I mentioned before, he did receive medals when serving under the Pope, and he actually kept these. He was very proud of them. He, he kept them on his person. It was said that he kept one of them in a little leather uh, pouch tied around his neck. And he was wearing them during the campaign of the Little Bighorn. Uh, what's interesting about him is, I mean, the battle itself is very interesting and is probably a topic for another podcast, I guess. Oh, on, yeah. on, you know, maybe I'll start an, a new pod, Untold Frontier or something. <laughs> But, um, and as far as I know, it's the only battlefield on which there are markers for where everyone fell. So even though we don't have firsthand accounts from the cavalry side, uh, at least from the Custer column, to say what happened at the battle, because most uh, they were all massacred to a man, we can sort of get a sort of interpretation of those cavalrymen's last moments by looking at the battlefield and those markers. Miles Keough was in command of Company I of the 7th Cavalry. He was said to be the handsomest man in the 7th Cavalry, very dashing in uniform, wearing his buckskin coat. I think Custer would have disputed that claim, but uh, Libby Custer was very fond of Miles Keough, as some would say. Miles Keough was actually wounded in the leg uh, during the fighting at the Little Bighorn. It's not sure whether he fell off his horse or was helped off his horse, but he and his command were found in sort of a, a last stand, and his remains were found surrounded by his command. Um, they all died together. Most wow. of the bodies at the Little Bighorn cavalrymen were mutilated. Custer went into battle with his brother, Tom Custer, another great interesting character who earned two medals of honor during the Civil War, um, but people don't really know about him. They know about his brother. His skull was flattened to the density of one's palm. A lot of these cavalrymen were mutilated. Miles Keough was left alone. Now, they say that the reason he was left alone was because some Sioux warriors may have found those medals around his neck and thought they were some sort of magic and left his body alone. Others say that while the Native Americans were on the reservation, some may have converted to the Catholic faith and they recognized the imagery and so they didn't touch his body. Who knows what the real story is, but those medals, I, I think were on auction, I saw on the internet um, wow. for some exorbitant amount <laughs> of money, but there are some great images of him wearing those medals that may have preserved his body at the end. A uh, neat story, I guess I could say about Company I and Miles Keough is I do like the story of Miles Keough. As you can tell, I'm pretty fond of him. Cimarron firearms, they produce a lot of cowboy action firearms, and they did produce a cavalry model single action army revolver. It's a tribute to the 7th Cavalry and every revolver they produced had stamped on the uh, handle a company that was part of the Custer column, wow. Company F, Company C. I was able to purchase one of those replica revolvers for myself. They're technically made in Italy, so I say it's my Spaghetti Western revolver. But it just so happened that the stamps on mine was Company I. So wow. that was just like a sign, That's like, ah, oh, Miles Keough is here. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But that was how my... Miles Keough met his sad end. But interesting that his medals from the Pope had an impact in, in the end, too. They did. They did. <laughs> so I'll quickly mention Henry Fieldham. Yes. Um, 
after the war, he goes back to Britain, actually gets a commission in the Royal Artillery, and then actually goes on the British Arctic Expedition. A lot of people oh, wow. know, know him for that service because he actually uh, was a naturalist and did a lot of natural sciences work. He uh, was recommended but not let into the Royal Society, but he was a member of the Royal Geographic Society and had kind of this second life that people know him for. One of the most famous examples of this is uh, that reminds me of this is there's a figure named Lane Fox who I've talked about before is a the the musketry instructor for the School of Musketry with the British Army. He actually trains a lot of the British soldiers in Malta before the war even starts, and they actually send him to Canada in preparation for a potential war during the Trent Affair. Um, so he's a professional soldier, um, is super involved in the creation of the School of Musketry and the building of professional musketry in the British Army, and yet he leaves the Army and has this whole second career as an anthropologist and a collector, and when he assumes his title, he becomes Lord Pitt Rivers. And we know him as Lane Fox, and yet he's famous in in natural history for having all this, this very eclectic con- collection of pieces from all over the world. Um, and there's actually, in Oxford, next to the uh, Natural History Museum is the Pitt Rivers Museum. And I went in and then asked them, do you have any images or anything um, relating to Pitt Rivers? And they're like, this is the Pitt Rivers. No, to Lane Fox, to the actual Lord Pitt Rivers. And they had a reference to him in one of the uh, displays, but they that was a past life. They didn't mention his military service. And so Henry Fielding is kind of the same way. He's personal friends with Kipling. Um, oh, wow. And uh, But he serves in both the, the, the First and the Second Boer War. Not very exciting tasks, though, in, this, in the Second Boer War. He's the paymaster. He's definitely a staff officer, but because he's a staff officer, he meets so many of these interesting characters. But yeah, personal friend of uh, Kipling. I mentioned Polignac was in the Franco-Prussian War, and then shall we talk about Sir Percy, or shall we talk about the Khedive? Oh, um, hmm. Do you want to save uh, Percy as your final one? Fine, we'll do Percy at yeah. the end. So let me just set the stage. So the Khedive in uh, the early 19th century, Egypt kind of asserts itself. And so even though it's nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, the Egyptians basically operate as their own country. And so the Khedive, they elevate themselves from the from a Wali to a Khedive, uh, basically a viceroy. And the Khedive in Egypt, Ishmael Pasha, has a lot of money. And Egypt has actually started making more money because they're producing a lot more cotton. Because somewhere in the world... They're not making as much cotton, and they're not shipping it out. (laughs) For some reason, there's some something going on yes um, and so both india and egypt start producing more cotton egypt being independent at the time starts actually making money from that and uh, ishmael pasha starts getting more weapons and more officers to uh, actually modernize the egyptian army and so about 50 americans in total from both sides go over to uh, serve the khedive and it's actually from a personal record recommendation from Sherman um, that all of these people are picked. There are French and British, even Prussian officers that serve with the Khedive, but they're famously, um, they're, uh, they're Americans. And I... This is my British bias, but a lot of the Americans take all the wrong lessons from the Civil War and apply them in Egypt. So they bring all of these troops there, and one of the most senior is William Loring. And Loring um, had been a general in the Confederate service, so now he's obviously going to be a general in um the Egyptian service, they actually place an Egyptian in charge of the Egyptian army. Shocking. And Loring's kind of offended by that, but they make him the chief of staff. And so begins, once they have a little bit of training, Washington Carroll Tevis is actually one of the people that's brought in for the training aspect of things. But the uh, Egyptian-Ethiopian War begins in the 1870s, sometimes referred to as the Egyptian-Abyssinian War. But they bring in all these Americans and they go on this campaign. Uh, there's a big campaign into Ethiopia, and it is a tremendous, horrible disaster. They, I've been reading Loring's account of it, and he has a whole different take on things, but a lot of the Egyptian sources say they were 
at this battle, they were in a fortress and the enemy was outside the fortress. And so Loring kind of bullied them into meeting them in the field where they were then horribly defeated. It comes with that men- that, that, that mentality of, you know, we have to uh, get that victory right now. Give them the bayonet. Yeah. Uh, don't yeah. do the methodical war. That's a European thing. American ingenuity is going to get it done. And so Loring still has a good reputation after that and continues in uh, in the Egyptian service. And then as the money runs out, uh, they start letting go of so many of these uh, these officers, especially after the disaster of the Abyssinian War. And Loring actually goes back to Florida after serving in Egypt. And he's the one of all of these figures that has recently been in the news because behind the Florida State House, he has a monument, and he's actually he was buried under the monument. Ah, and it's actually a big obelisk in recognition of his Ottoman service. And he mentions uh, it mentions that he uh, you know worked for the Egyptians, you know, was a major general, had the Order of Osmania and the Order of Majidi, and you know was an actual accomplished soldier on two continents. But recently, it's been seen as another one of the Confederate monuments. It had a difficult time because he was physically buried there yeah um, and there are a lot of laws protecting graves that don't apply to monuments but it yeah. was relocated so it wasn't destroyed okay um, and it wasn't taken down in a protest but they did decide to, to move it safely and so i'm uh, glad that it was moved safely and the, relocated the uh, grave was moved as well or just the 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 obelisk and, and remains yeah and remains yeah okay yeah. that must so have been a hell of an engineering the, feat it was oh. on the grounds of the state house and part of it was in uh, on a university so they decided to move it for political reasons yeah uh, and then it was uh, relocated so it wasn't destroyed it should be in a, uh, a cemetery there's still an ongoing uh, debate about it but i think it's it's interesting that they went with the obelisk kind of in a in in homage to his service with him wasn't there uh hopkins sibley henry hopkins yes. sibley right and, you know at least in the civil war and the reenacting world they know sibley from the sibley tent you know, the, the right round tent is uh his patent but uh sibley was there um there were there were quite a few people that were were there but loring was the one accused of making the blunders right well i mean i remember vaguely reading i could be wrong but i know for sure when sibley commanded that new mexico campaign which was quite a wild campaign, which was the uh, background for a good, bad, and the ugly. Yes. Um, yes. Reading accounts about that, there was a lot of times where he really wasn't in command because he'd been drinking a lot. I don't know if that drinking may have affected him over there, though. Well, we don't we, we yeah. don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those things that it could be just to slur his name. I mean, there's so many instances yeah. where Grant, yep. um, where people are saying he's drinking even though he's not drinking. Right. And I still do not, claim to know what happened with Loring or any of the other Confederates or Union soldiers in, in Egyptian service. I just know that they might not have been bringing the professionalism that they thought they were bringing. Uh, right. But, uh, That's fair. Very and, diplomatic. And, and fairness to them, I think the Egyptian army was not what they were used to working with either. No, yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. And and it was a really difficult set of conditions. I mean, other countries have had a hard time fighting in Ethiopia. The Italians get absolutely destroyed uh, just 10 years later in Ethiopia. So it, it's a difficult set of, of, of circumstances, but I'm not sure whether they got their money's worth <laughs> by hiring Confederates. Well, Maybe. you have taken us pretty far out. I'm, I'm going to reel us back in here to okay. talk about Mexico and yeah. good old Emperor Maximilian there. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So if we go back to one of my final characters, Prince Felix, the end of the war, even though he's offered command, the regular army, turns it down, as I said, and he decides to go assist Emperor Maximilian. Uh, He's actually made aide-de-camp and chief of the household. That's what high regard the emperor had for him. And he was actually right beside the emperor when the Waristas finally capture Maximilian. But before that, during the conflict, he was actually in command of the elite Casadores, and they were a wild 
wild bunch, and he talks about how they were just constantly fighting each other, and on the battlefield, it was hard to maintain order because even the Bugle Boys were trying to outdo the next man with the their shots and heroics. But I did want to read this quick little snippet of his service where he's actually tasked with capturing a parrot gun that the uh, Waristas have. And I'll, I'll read it first, but there's a couple reasons why I wanted to mention this. So this is just before the attack, and he says, I thought it well to address my impatient boys and made a speech to them still more effective than any of those with which I once encouraged my soldiers in the United States, then in broken English, and now in still more broken Spanish. I told them that I did not want to hear a shot until I ordered it and that the main business had to be done with the bayonet. I then formed them for the attack, keeping them under cover as long as possible. While I did so, my men actually quivered with eagerness, like a pack of hounds waiting for the signal. With a tremendous cheer in as many languages as were spoken around the Tower of Babel and a Viva el Emperador. They stormed the bridge and rode before it. When they had reached about the middle of the place, we received a shower of canister at a distance of 50 paces and discovered the dangerous parrot before us. I raised my sword and calling out Viva el Emperador a la pieza muchachos, we rushed up to the gun. A liberal commander of the gun, a lieutenant, fired at the major with his revolver and wounded him severely. But it was with his last shot, half a dozen bayonets were immediately buried in his body. All the artillerymen belonging to the rifled cannon were bayoneted or killed with the stock of the guns used like clubs and the conquered piece was sent back to the bridge. He goes on and he talks about how there were many French members in his unit that were furiated by the butchery of at San Jacinto. And they found many Frenchmen fighting with the liberals, he says, and they had no mercy on those other Frenchmen that were on the opposite side. He even says here, one of my sergeants, a Frenchman, had killed in a house four Mexican. A fifth man, a Frenchman, was on his knees, knees praying for mercy. His conqueror, in charging his musket, said, all the mercy I, I will grant you is this, that I will not dispatch you like a dog, but give you the honor of a bullet. With that, he very calmly shot his countryman dead. So the reason I wanted to read that besides being very colorful and uh, a lot of action is here we are again another conflict we've got frenchmen we've got felix who admits that he cannot speak english nor can he speak spanish and he's leading these men and he mentions that everyone is yelling you know long live the emperor in a multitude of different languages so these soldiers of fortune are coming from all over the place and they find another home here in mexico uh, yeah. in another conflict so i thought that was kind of interesting and the fact that the parrot is most likely from the United States. So there are several, he mentions in his book that several Americans were in the conflict as well, and fighting for the opposite side. Actually, he survives that. He survives okay. and he actually ends up, he does die in combat, but in the Franco-Prussian War. Okay. So he does survive all of that and dies back in Europe. But it's very interesting because there were several times where he tried his best to, and so did his wife, to rescue the emperor, but to uh, no avail. The emperor is ultimately executed by firing squad, so... So, do you have any more figures that we need to cover? I guess in just the last one for me, I'll say before we do our deep dive into your last one, right? Yeah. Just George DuPont, again, from Siam, uh, serves in the Civil War, is discharged. 1865, finds it hard returning back to civilian life, and he ends up going back to Siam and serving as in their army as an instructor. So sort of what Loring did. And he ends up dying in 1900 and is buried in Bangkok. Not so adventurous, but definitely takes us to another part of the globe that we yeah. haven't really touched on yet. So That's that's fascinating. So the one part that I, I think you, it is one of the great podcast cliches to mention that it's going to be another podcast but yeah. on another <laughs> podcast i'd like to talk about the naval volunteers okay um, i didn't yeah. mention them today because you know that's that's a whole other episode that there was european service in the navies on both sides the civil war navy just doesn't get enough attention i think we yeah. do deserve to give the navy its own episode yeah. i mean it's it's about time really yeah. <laughs> so i will i'll now mention sir percy so sir so Percy, actually, there's a bit of a, a defamation, a, a bit of a uh, an accusation that he is a bit of a fraud in the middle of the Civil War. That it, you know he's marching around calling himself Sir, and um, some people in Britain that actually say that write about this, and he has this famous quote where he says, "Some men make a name for themselves." 
others die contemplating the parents who gave them their name. And I think that kind of sums up Sir Percy. You know, he doesn't want to continue in the life that he was given in Britain, and he wants to make a name for himself where, however he can do that. And that's that must be a lot of these people willing to travel across across oceans to fight in the Civil War. But he goes, uh, he leaves in 1864. He actually organizes the defense of, of Washington during one of Lee's invasions. He actually gathers a bunch of cavalry for the defense of Washington. But in 1864, he leaves the army and in 1865 goes to the Royal Italian Army back to Italy and works for the Royal Italian Army. And then in 1879, he goes to India. There's not much on his Indian service, but uh, you ended in Siam and I'm going to end in Burma. Uh, there you go. I'm going to read from his uh, his obituary because his, his death is as fantastic as his life. Thrown from a balloon, news of a sad accident comes from Rangoon. Colonel Percy Wyndham, a gentleman well-known in Calcutta and Rangoon, announced an ascent in a balloon of his own construction. After attaining the height of about 500 feet, the balloon burst, and the unfortunate aeronaut fell into the Royal Lake, whence he was extricated quite dead. Colonel Percy Wyndham was a distinguished soldier of fortune. He served with great credit under General Garibaldi, and the Northern Army during the American War. He came to Calcutta some years ago where he established a successful comic paper. Then he became impresario of the opera. Next, he entered the services of the King of Burma as commander-in-chief. Soon, however, quarreling with that potentate, he went to Rangoon where his characteristic death closed a career more checkered than falls the lot of many in this commonplace age. Sir Percy Wyndham, soldier of fortune, impresario of the opera, and failed balloonist. You can't make that up. No, no. As you said in the other episode, the truth is always far stranger, far more interesting than the fiction. We can't even imagine some of this stuff. It's just the reality of it. <laughs> and I think that's a great note to end on right there. So thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. I was really eager to do this one. And, you know, I'm doing it with the right person right here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so until next time, thank All you. All right. Well, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that episode while sitting at your local coffee shop, standing in line for your rations, chipping a tooth on that hardtack, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Thank you again to Craig Duncan for the use of his music. And also, give us a five-star review on iTunes, if so inclined. We'd love to hear from you. If you wish to support the show, please download the app Gettysburg, A Nation Divided with the code UNTOLDCIVILWAR with no spaces. A portion of your app purchase will support the show with no extra cost to you. You can also support us by following us on Instagram and liking us on Facebook. Thank you for your interest in Untold Civil War. I hope you tune in next time for our next episode.